I invite you to turn with me in the scriptures to the book of Genesis again, up to Genesis 41 this morning. Genesis chapter 41, the first book of the Bible. Last time we saw Joseph, who had been brought down to Egypt, made a slave and then put in prison, interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. And that's the interpretation coming true, and then Joseph being forgotten by the butler or cupbearer. And then two years later, we come to Genesis 41. It's a long scripture reading. Let's give our attention to this story, God's true story, Genesis 41. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream, and one night he and I... Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream, and it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us. So it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning, so I awoke. 
And I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass." Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphnath, Paneah, and he gave him as a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. When Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. 
And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the lands. God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing. O gracious God, we read your history, your story, the great wonders and works of the Lord who's ordained all things that comes to pass. We thank you, Lord, for working for the good of your church and for the world. And we praise you, asking that you would help us to see all the more the glory of our Redeemer here. Grant your word to be preached truthfully. Give us hearts of faith to believe. In Jesus' name, we pray for you to be glorified that this preaching and receiving of preaching would itself be an act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people of God, the story here in Genesis 41 is an amazing story, really, right? Uh, A man, a young man, begins his day in the dungeon, in a prison, and by the end of the day, he's ruler of Egypt. It's a fascinating story. It's the stuff of good movies, the rags to riches tale, a man born in the inner city, in poverty, an area ruled by gangs, having nothing, rises to become a great NBA player or a, or a head of some corporation or a great philanthropist. We, we love those kinds of stories. But this is not just a rags-to-riches tale. This is, this is the Lord's story of his working salvation for his people and really for the world. God's at work here to save his prophetic people, the family of Jacob, the Old Testament church. And he wants to save them from the coming famine so they don't starve to death. And he wants to get them to Egypt to isolate them from the corrupt culture of Canaan until the day when they will take over there. And God is at work here. He's at work to safeguard his prophetic people because they have a message for the world. I want you to think as we, as we look at Genesis 41 this morning about the place of the church in the world. And to, to ask the question, do we as the church have something to say to the world? We, we often feel that we don't, right? We, well, Satan wants us to believe that, that we have nothing to say to our next-door neighbor. We have nothing to offer the world. We have, we have nothing to say or give to our co-worker. And we're often intimidated. We often shy away. We often feel like, like we'd be imposing our religion. Or we have this idea that, that, that religion is for sissies, or faith is a private matter, or, or that Christianity is intolerant. And so we feel silly to talk about the things of our Lord. But we see in Genesis 41 this morning that, that the living God is never irrelevant. He rules the destinies of nations. And therefore, he rules the destiny of every life. 
We ought not to be slow to speak of the Lord or slow to invite people to church to come and hear God's word because our God is never irrelevant. He's never confined to the prayer closet. He's, he's never off limits. He is the creator and the ruler and the sustainer of this world. He rules for the glory of his name and the good of his church and, and the salvation of the world. And, and we of all people on the earth, we have that knowledge. We have that truth. We have the right understanding. Joseph is, by the end of the story, second in command in Egypt. But you know, we were created to rule, weren't we? God made Adam and Eve to be king and queen. God made mankind to have dominion over the earth. We are made to rule in the name and by the word of the Lord. We should be encouraged here by this passage to see that God exalts his sovereign word in Egypt through his servant Joseph. The first thing I have you notice this morning, and there's three of them, the first thing is the crisis that God brings into Pharaoh's court. The crisis that God brings to Pharaoh's court. It's been two years since Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, and, and now the Lord has interrupted the sleep of the king of Egypt, the superpower of the world, with dreams. For two years, Joseph had, had been forgotten in prison now. He's, he's been learning patience, but God never forgot Joseph for a moment, and at just the right moment now, God is at work in the life of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has these two dreams, and they deeply trouble him. They deeply trouble him. A man who, in the eyes of the Egyptians, was not just a man. The Pharaoh in Egypt was not even just a king. The Pharaoh was considered that link between the gods and the people, and in fact was considered to be himself an incarnation of Horus, the falcon-headed god. So the Pharaoh was considered to be, in a way, divine. He, he represented Egypt. He was, in a way, the life of Egypt, the head of the state, and more. He was to rule and maintain order. And if Pharaoh's troubled, that means Egypt's troubled. If Pharaoh is troubled, this link between the gods and the people, if he's troubled, then his whole court is troubled. Pharaoh has this sense that, that his dreams they've had were special. They have meaning. He first dreams of seven fine-looking cows. And these are not Holstein or Jersey, presumably. Certainly not standing in a milking parlor. But they're, they're on the banks of the Nile. They're, they're eating the grass there. Well-fed cows. And then the surprise. That wasn't the surprise. That was typical. The surprise are these ugly cows that come up that are skinny scrawny, and they are cannibal cows. They eat up the fat ones, though they don't have anything to show for it. And then the second dream, these seven heads of grain, plump, fine-looking, and then devoured by seven thin heads. Pharaoh here is, is on the receiving end of these dreams. He, the mighty king, this god of Egypt, is not giving orders and telling people what to do. He's receiving a message. The initiative is taken from him. And these dreams are troubling to him for at least two reasons. Number one, the first reason these dreams are troubling to him is the Nile River. The Nile River. You read at the very beginning of Genesis 41 that, that it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river. That's the Nile. That's what they call the Nile. It's the river. 
And the Nile was everything. They used to say that the Nile gave Egypt. That Egypt is the gift of the Nile. It was the Nile that, that cut the valley. It's the Nile that flooded every year and brought this silt over the banks and into the fields that gave fertile soil to an otherwise desert land. The Nile was everything to Egypt. It was her culture. It was her life. Her cities were built along it. The Nile touched every facet of their being and even their religion. They deified the Nile River and worshipped it. And they usually did well in famine because they had the Nile. There's usually grain in Egypt. There's grain in Egypt. The cows were fat. Things were going well. And now in this dream, it doesn't make sense to Pharaoh. It's as if there's no life in the Nile. We know how our politicians are shaken up when they get bad quarterly reports from corporations, when the GDP goes down, when inflation arises. The world takes notice. This is not just some small economic adjustment here. This is devastating news in his dreams. The Nile was the economy of Egypt. And the Nile, as one writer says, was an expression of the imperial power fertility. One writer writes, it is the administration of the Nile which permits the king to generate and guarantee life. The failure of the Nile and its life system means that the empire does not have in itself the power of life. That's the first reason Pharaoh's upset. The second reason is that he can't discern the meaning. He sees what doesn't belong, what doesn't fit, what's ugly, but he can't discern what it means. He, who is God, supposedly, he can't discern his dreams, but then all the wise men, all the magicians of Egypt can't discern either. They can't tell. Calls in his professional dream interpreters, and they, they can't get it. They can't understand. So all the resources of the court of Pharaoh are useless. And God here is revealing to Pharaoh that he doesn't have life in himself. He doesn't have wisdom in himself. He isn't the ruler and sustainer of Egypt as he imagined himself to be. But Pharaoh here is being confronted, isn't he, with the almighty God, with the living God. Because he's a worshiper of creation rather than the creator, as are his people. And that's been the issue, right? It's, all, it's always the issue. It's the issue throughout all the Bible. From the very first, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and imagined, according to the lies of Satan, that this piece of fruit could give them a higher life. Well, fruit doesn't give anybody a higher life. They worship the serpent. They worship themselves. Remember in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas ministered there and they healed the cripple, that the people went nuts and began to worship them. And Paul and Barnabas, they tear their clothes and they run among the people and they say, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness And that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. The great problem of mankind is that they worship creation, but all of creation is God's witness to say, I'm the creator, bow before me. The issue in our world today, and our world's not really any different than the world of Joseph's day, is it? 
so many ways the same, though our culture, of course, claims to be secular. We don't have any gods, and yet our culture is full of gods. They don't call them gods. They don't go by that name, but they're gods. So somebody with the fish symbol on the back of their car had wings on it. I guess it was a, I think it was supposed to be a spaceship. And in the middle it said science. Well, that's a declaration of, of deity, isn't it? That's a religion. Medicine, technology, doctorate degrees, celebrities, investments, insurance policies, a man-made morality code. One of the constant idols of our time, the cure for sorrow and boredom, is entertainment. We are a culture flooded with entertainment. Woe to anyone who has to sit silently for a moment and meditate on anything. We need constant sound and sight stimulation. We need to be entertained. That's a God. But the greatest delusion of all is the delusion of self-determination. Adam and Eve tried it out, that I can determine my destiny. And the nations of the world try it out, and every people try it out, that I am God, I'm on top, I have life in myself. But then comes a famine. And the famine, you know, is related to the curse, and the curse is related to sin. God has put a curse upon this world in judgment. There's also a mercy in it, isn't there? The thorns and thistles in the field, they are a curse, but they're also a mercy because they remind us we don't have life in ourselves. We do not have the power of self-determination. And so the frustrations at work and the pain in raising children, all of these things are opportunities to turn to God and say, I don't have life in myself. I can't give myself everlasting life. I need your grace and help. Pharaoh thinks he's a superpower. He thinks he gives his people life. And now he's confronted with a Nile that won't do the job for him. And the living God is saying, you are not the sustainer of life. When Israel will leave... Egypt, 400 years later, they will do so when the Lord turns the Nile to blood and says again in the midst of Egypt, the Nile is not your God. And God wants Israel to know that. He wants his people to know that. In fact, this book of Genesis, again, remember, it's written by Moses and it's first read to the Israelites in the wilderness, presumably. And they're being reminded that that though Egypt seems so powerful and you're still tempted to go back to Egypt, remember, Egypt does not have life in itself. Pharaoh is not your God. The Nile River is not your salvation. The economy is not your lifeblood. God is confronted. We must believe it too. We must know that it's all a facade. No one, nothing has life in itself but God. So we see, first of all, the crisis that God brings into Pharaoh's court. And we're grateful for crises when they awaken people to weakness. And we can even look upon our own crises, can't we? our own sorrows, our own frustrations at work, our own difficulties, as so many opportunities from God to be reminded that he holds our life in his hands. But after this crisis God brings to Pharaoh's court, then we see secondly this morning the wisdom, the wisdom that God reveals through Joseph. 
Suddenly the cupbearer remembers Joseph or decides it's a good time to remember Joseph and he tells Pharaoh about Joseph and his dream interpretations and and Pharaoh sends for Joseph. He has to get cleaned up to come before the Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, "I've, I've heard you can understand and interpret dreams. And it's striking what Joseph says, his first word to Pharaoh, no, it's not in me. I cannot interpret dreams, but God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He corrects Pharaoh. He's come from the prison cell to stand before the mighty Pharaoh, who regards himself as a god. And Joseph, with fearless devotion to the Lord, he says, Pharaoh, you're wrong. You got it wrong about me. But let me tell you about God. He interprets dreams. He alone knows all things. And then this emphasis on God continues with Joseph. Verse 25, after Pharaoh has told Joseph his dreams, Joseph says in verse 25, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. What a statement. No one, presumably no one has ever come into the court of Pharaoh before and done this, has declared the name of some other God, some greater God, the God of the Hebrews, as the true God. Joseph says, Pharaoh, it's, it's not about you and what you're going to do. It's about what God is going to do. Your trouble is that there's someone greater than you. There's a voice that has interrupted your life. There is a dream that has been told you about what God is going to do. And then Joseph explains about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And then he says it again in verse 28. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then after emphasizing how severe the famine is going to be, Joseph says it a third time, verse 32, the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. What a witness standing in the courts of Pharaoh. Joseph declaring that God controls, God rules, God reigns over weather patterns, over the rise and the fall of the Nile River, over all things. Standing in the courts of Pharaoh, You can imagine all the wise men and magicians, all the princes of the land are there. And here stands who? A foreigner, a young man, a former slave, a convicted sexual assaulter. And he comes into Pharaoh's court to tell him that God is going to do something. What a remarkable emphasis. That's exactly what the world needs to hear today as the world worships itself and lives in denial of the greatest reality in all of the world, the I am who I am. Image bearers all over the planet denying the great I am, the, the main thing of the universe, God. And they need to be confronted, don't they, with the living God. The church of God has the voice of prophecy because we have the prophetic word. And God's going to bring Joseph's family, his father Jacob's family, Israel's family, down into Egypt to live there for 400 years. But God will bring them out with wonders that will cause all men to know that I am God. Right? He's going to split the Red Sea. He's going to descend upon Mount Sinai. He's going to cut off the Jordan River. He's going to make the walls of Jericho fall over. He's going to drive out the Canaanites that all men may tremble before him. And Israel then, in the land of Canaan, was to be this light upon the hill saying, this is the true God to all the world. Come and worship the true God. And Israel gets mixed up and thinks, not that God's special, but we're special. We're so special. 
and they fall into sin. But Joseph has it right. He exalts God. He diminishes himself. And he confesses, it's not in me. I have nothing to give you, Pharaoh, but it's all from God. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now, I really like what Alan Ross writes <clears throat> Excuse me, in his commentary on, his, on the passage. Let me read a few lines. He writes, The humility and faith of Joseph thus come through in this chapter, because God has given Joseph the special gift, and because God has singled out Joseph for this special interpreting ministry, it was Joseph's duty to give glory to God for the revelation and meaning, and to take none of the glory for himself. Those whom God calls to special service must make it a point to inform the unbelieving world that any success or ability that they have comes from God. When they explain God's revelation to the world, they must confront the world with God. Imagine if Joseph had done anything else. If he had drawn Pharaoh's eyes to himself and said, yes, I'm, I'm pretty good at interpreting dreams. Joseph is pointing Pharaoh's eyes to the supreme being of the world, to the living God. We must confront the world with God, not with ourselves, not with our supposed wisdom, not with our brilliance, not with our goodness. We're a great moral people. The world needs to come face to face with the living God, the supreme being of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, who holds the destinies of men in his hands. We must deal with God. We may not stand in the way or rob the Lord of his glory. The world needs to be humbled. They need to know the one who is awesome. Tomorrow, as I mentioned, is Reformation Day. And that last slogan of those five battle cries of the Reformation, you heard in the congregational prayer, is what? Soli Deo Gloria. Glory be to God alone. In fact, that was the great motivation of the Reformers. Why is it so important to know that we're saved by grace alone? Well, so we can get saved. No. No, the greatest reason to know we're saved by grace alone is so that God gets the glory, so that his name is exalted. God has confounded Pharaoh and his court. They cannot understand the dreams. They cannot understand the meaning of history. Our culture bows to a host of phony wise men, scholars, scientists, celebrities, culture makers. But when the sovereign God chooses to confront man, he confounds his supposed wisdom, doesn't he? We get discouraged sometimes, don't we? When people don't listen to the word we want to speak, we contemplate giving up the message, toning it down, we lose heart. But we should know that whether or not we get to stand before kings, or whether or not people seem willing to listen, we should never stop announcing that our God rules and he's proclaimed what he will do. He promised to send his son and he did it. He declared that he would raise his son from the dead, and he did it. And he's announced that he will send his son again to judge the living and the dead, and he will do it. 
And who knows that? You know that. You know that. God has given to his people the wisdom of Christ Jesus. He has given to us the interpretation of history. The meaning of this world is not known by thousands of unbelieving university professors. It's not discovered by a multitude of scientists of international rank. It is not found out by visiting the moon or Mars. But it's given to you to know. What is the meaning of this? You know. We must speak to the world about the God who will call every life to account and the God who will give forgiveness to everyone who embraces his mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. What we do today is not so different than what Joseph was to do there. He stood before the world to announce God. And so must we. Boldness, knowing that we have a wisdom from heaven, and we ought never to diminish that. If we daily renew our commitment to say solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, then we go forward knowing that when God is pleased to move men's hearts, God will do that, but it is not for us to give up speaking the message. God is king, and his word is his scepter, And we want to confront all men with his wisdom that puts to shame the wisdom of the world. Shame on us when we're embarrassed. Shame on us then when we are embarrassed before the world because the courts of Pharaoh are so prestigious and all the important men are there and they know better. Do you see what God has done here? God has shown to us that the world knows nothing. Pharaoh admits it. I don't know it. All my wise men don't know it. But I've heard you, Joseph, might know it. And Joseph says, no, I don't know it. But I'll tell you who does. God's people often stood before kings, before princes, before the Roman emperor, before the mighty of the land. And declared the truth that men must deal with God because history is indeed his story and he rules the nations. Let's consider finally one more point, the life that God holds out to the world. We've seen the crisis that God brings to Pharaoh's court and then the wisdom that God reveals through Joseph and now thirdly the life that God holds out to the world. Joseph not only interprets the dreams, he He presents some unsolicited advice. Get a discerning man, put him in charge. Gather the grain during the seven good years so that the land will not perish during the famine. Again, it's amazing, really, right? Young man, foreigner, prisoner, convicted felon, and he's telling the Pharaoh how to run his kingdom. Or maybe even more striking, a foreigner, a felon, showing a real interest in the well-being of Egypt. He's telling Pharaoh how Egypt can live and not die. Joseph just made clear in his interpretation 
that God is not some distant deity who is unconcerned with the affairs upon earth, but he's intimately involved, ordaining and controlling what happens. And how fitting, then, that God's servant should have an interest in the affairs of the world. You know, throughout history, Christians have had different responses to to politics, to economy, and so forth. And there have been some Christians who say that, that Christians ought not to serve in the political sphere, maybe shouldn't vote. And here we come up to an election, and we say no. We are citizens of God's kingdom, but we live upon this earth, and we are to care about our neighbors. Joseph had a real interest in the well-being of Egypt. We ought to have a real interest in the well-being of the United States, an interest in the well-being of Oregon, an interest in the well-being of our city or town. Because we believe that God has a purpose that's being worked out here below. And we're called to love our neighbors. Well, Pharaoh is led by God's hand, isn't he, to recognize that in Joseph is true wisdom. The Spirit of God is in him. And what does he do? It's a turning point, isn't it, in the whole story now. He lifts up Joseph to be second in command in all of Egypt. That Egypt will be ruled according to the word of Joseph. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater. Joseph, get rid of the prisoner clothes. Joseph, put on these fine garments. Joseph, a necklace of of gold. Joseph, riding in the second chariot behind the Pharaoh. People bowing down before him. What does Mrs. Potiphar say now? Joseph had been thrown into a pit by his brothers, carried down to Egypt, sold into slavery, put down in a dungeon, is now lifted up to the highest height in the land of Egypt. Joseph's 30 years old. He was 19 years old when he was brought into Potiphar's house. He's had 11 years of humiliation. But during those 11 years of humiliation, he did not abandon the Lord. Now he's exalted to heights. And what will he do? Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name. Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian wife. Things look a little bit scary, don't they? What, what will Joseph do? Will he, will he lose his identity in this pagan land of Egypt? No, he has two sons. And he names the first one Manasseh. Sounds like the, the word forget. And he says, for God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. Not forget in the sense of abandon them and disown them. But God has eased my pain. And in that, Joseph shows us he hasn't grown bitter towards the Lord in all these days of suffering. Then he has another son who names him Ephraim, which sounds like double fruitfulness. And he says, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And Joseph is confessing that Egypt is not home. Egypt is the land of his affliction. He is still one with God's people. He is still looking for the land of promise. Though he's exalted to such a high rank, he has not forgotten who he is. He's bound to the covenant Lord, and the spirit of the coming Christ is in him. Joseph, 30 years old, but but after Joseph will come another 30-year-old. Our Lord Jesus, the greater son of Abraham, and he will go down, won't he? Come down from heaven. Come down to be born in a stable. 
come down under the sufferings, come down all the way to death on a cross and the curse of hell. But having humbled himself, become obedient to death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and given the name of every name, that every knee should bow before him. And all authority in heaven and on earth is given to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Joseph's life is, in a sketchy way, sort of an outline way, a picture of what God will do through the Savior. And as the chapter comes to a close, all of Egypt is coming to Joseph for bread, for grain. And then we read, even at the end, verse 57, So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the lands. What an amazing thing. Here we are. At the end of chapter 41, Joseph at the beginning is in a prison. At the end, all the world is coming not to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh says to people, go to Joseph. All the world gathering at the feet of Joseph for life bread. And you see, God is working out the promise he gave to Abram. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. God's great faithfulness to God's promise that he had called one man, Abram, away from his homeland and said to him that in you the world is going to reap a harvest and be blessed. And now through Joseph it's happening in a, in a physical way, right? They're receiving physical sustenance. People are alive because of Joseph. Joseph is the savior of the world. People eat and live because of Joseph, because he interpreted the dream, because he stored up the grain, because he had wisdom from God. But after Joseph, of this family of Jacob, comes another. Not of Joseph's line, no, but of Judah's line, our Lord Jesus. And he comes saying, do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he says, And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus Christ, when he's lifted from the grave and seated above in heaven, holding in his hand salvation and life, gathers the nations at his feet to eat of him the bread of life and to live. You see, brothers and sisters, it's all one story. It's only one story. All the Bible is one story. All of history is one story. It's the story of a people who chose the delusion of self-determination and said, I can get my own bread. I can supply my own life. I can do it myself. And a God who said, no, you can't. But I will give you one who can gain life for you, who can put you back into fellowship with me, who can sustain not just your body but your soul to everlasting life. God gave his son. 
Are we intimidated by the nations of the world? We get scared by those who have money, those who are successful, people who have titles after their name or before their name, people who, who hold high office. What is God showing us people here? That in the courts of the most powerful man on earth, there is no wisdom. They know nothing. And by one humble servant who has heard the voice of God, there comes life to Egypt. Have we recognized our calling as the church? In a world that faces the curse of famine, spiritual famine, a world that Though they call all their counselors and wise men, they cannot find a way out. And we, the servants of the Lord, we have the message. The message. Gather at the feet of the Lord Jesus. In him are all the storehouses of God's mercy and grace, the forgiveness of sins, and life everlasting. How can we read a story like this and then be ashamed? I can read a story like this and then be embarrassed to speak of our mighty God and our great Savior. Our God is the ruler of the destinies of nations. And nations of themselves are fools. But Christ is the wisdom of God and redemption. Lift up your hearts and be emboldened. Lift up your voice and speak to your neighbor. Rejoice. Your Savior reigns with life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we praise you and thank you for your word that reminds us again of who you are and who our Christ is. Forgive us, O God, for shrinking back. Awaken us to our calling. Remind us that we hold in our hands the wisdom from heaven, the word of life. And open doors, Lord, for us to speak. Help us to do so boldly and with meekness. We may glorify the one who deserves all glory. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.